0: My name's Tom Jennings, and this is the Twenty Four Frames cast, and it's a welcome return to the podcasting waves. I know, I appreciate it. it's been many, many months since I last put out an episode. Um, I've been keeping quite a, quite a strict schedule on the Master Cinema cast of Joachim, but I haven't actually got around to doing any of these shows just because um, a number of reasons. Really, main, one of them, I suppose, was the Master Cinema that was kind of taking up kind of my my podcasting time that I had because I've been very busy with some other things. At work has been ridiculously um fraught of recent months i've been working on some films for the upcoming elections and now that's kind of out the way well the elections aren't obviously but the the filming process is actually out the way now so i've been able to kind of get some more free time and also i've kind of started another relationship with um someone over the past few months and it's just one of those kind of early doors kind of um honeymoon periods where we've been kind of enjoying spending a lot of time together she doesn't actually live in england she lives in ireland so i've been going over there a lot in, in a lot of my spare time and kind of podcasting is just kind of taking a bit of a back seat unfortunately but now that kind of uh, things have settled down a little bit I have been able to kind of set some time aside and I can start putting out episodes again and I, I, re- I really you know, wanted to continue with the podcast and it's been great how many people have been emailing me and kind of sending me messages on Twitter asking kind of where I've been up to and things like that and I kept saying oh there's something on the way and uh, I never quite got around to putting it out but luckily now you know things have cleared up a little bit and I can kind of begin to put more episodes out there and it, it's frustrating actually because there's been so much I wanted to talk about and then so many kind of episodes and i've been working on and i haven't had time to finish and um with the kind of with things looking a little bit more uh, relaxed for me i will be able to kind of settle down finish those and get them out and also kind of just keep up kind of keep up to date with kind of what's been going on and kind of blu-ray releases and films that i've been watching at the cinema and kind of the longer form episodes as well that i've been working on so hopefully this will be uh, the beginning of a slightly more kind of more regular output but We shall see. It's coming up to summer as well, which sometimes means uh, filming can kind of take off again with various projects. So we'll just kind of play it by ear. But my intention is definitely to carry on to put more episodes out. And I know it's rather belated to kind of do an end of year review show for 2014. But I did want to do one and I was working on it and writing kind of a few notes down since January really in preparation for this. So I kind of thought it'd be a bit of a shame to kind of do all that work and not actually put anything out. And... Especially, as kind of, 2014 was quite. I, I thought it was quite an interesting year for me for cinema. I, I, I watched more films last year. I watched more films last year that um, more contemporary films last year than I had any other year before. So there must be something about 2014 that I, um, I enjoyed. And and I did have a few uh, emails from people asking me what my favourite films were. So I thought we'd do this. And uh, once at the end now this is out of the way, we can kind of you can email me with your thoughts on the films that I've picked. And I just wanted to kind of. Um, clarify really what my criteria is for um, picking films because I, I remember last year I had a few emails from people saying that the, some of the films that I had picked um, came out in other parts of the world the year before and yeah I just want to kind of address that really I I go to to make to qualify for my kind of 2014, the film has to have a UK release date in 2014, so I don't really care if it was released in America in 2013 or whatever, or, or somewhere else in the world, even before that. As long as it was released in, in the UK in 2014, it was eligible for me to, to count. So if there are films in there which kind of seem a little bit older, or kind of came out in the year before, that's why they're in there. What I kind of found in general, what I found about 2014 was that I seem to watch a lot of films that I thought were okay or good, interspersed with some films that I thought were truly great now at least two of the films on my list um, are easily two of the best films I think I've ever seen and possibly some of my favourites of all time and would definitely make uh, a top 100 list if if I were to kind of to make one of those and I felt that the majority though did fall into this category of feeling quite average and at times frustratingly located in a middle ground whereby with a few simple improvements or perhaps omissions or additions they could have been so much more to me and i've been wondering kind of you know why this was the case and for me i felt that sometimes filmmakers were being a little bit too reserved perhaps rather than really kind of pushing the boat out there they're more interested in sticking to a kind of slightly more formulaic approach and it seemed to be a recurring theme in many of my trips to the cinema kind of a promising opening an intriguing middle and a slow slide to the familiar and overall underwhelming experience. Take, for example, The Rover. It was a perfectly acceptable piece of post-apocalyptic misery starring Guy Pearce and Rumpa Pattinson. It looked fantastic, it was well acted, and I'm kind of down with any kind of outback film where the world is going to shit, you know, a la kind of Mad Max. But I think The Rover could best be described as interestingly dull. It seemed to kind of lack a really kind of satisfying central core, and it didn't stay with me after the credits rolled. I wasn't thinking about it in any other term rather than kind of a kind of demissive kind of feeling that I had enjoyed it but really a few hours after i left cinema I wasn't thinking about it at all and certainly in the, the, the few days after it I, I didn't really kind of pay much attention at all I have gone back to the rover and it, yeah it, it, I think it was kind of it didn't really hold up that much on kind of second viewing either and the, the same went for Blue Ruin which was a similar story that felt like a good old kind of premise that, that it was it didn't really kind of have a much of a satisfying whole. It was good, but never great, and I kind of felt it could have been more than. And I kind of I was wondering kind of what 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 why was this? And it just seemed to me that it was a very kind of familiar story, and I'm I'm kind of down with kind of seeing familiar stories as long as they're kind of told in an interesting way. And what I found really was that after kind of the kind of the initial setup of Blue Ruin, I was kind of just sat there really going through kind of almost predicting in my head where the film was going and what I found was that it did go to the places where I thought it was going to go to and I, I don't know whether my expectations for kind of cinema had become too high and I, I completely appreciate that making a film is incredibly hard and making a good one even harder and making a great one I think um, near on impossible but it just seemed that critics also were kind of falling over films like Blue Ruin and I, and I kind of I was stumped as to kind of why why, why that was the case and I it, it's something which I, I don't think, I think it's probably a, a bigger topic than I could possibly cover you know, what, what was this overhype and is it perhaps when we do see a film that's okay and you couldn't you can't say it's bad are we kind of more inclined just to suddenly sit there and say this is actually great because in comparison to so many other films you, you know like something like I don't know Mrs. Brown's Boys the movie or whatever that Horrific thing was called, you know. Are, are we so kind? Of, are we comparing the kind of average films to really awful ones, and then kind of coming to this conclusion that average to good films are in fact a lot better than they actually are? I don't, I don't know. It just seems to me that kind of hyperbole was wra- wrapped up to a factor of ten last year. And the other thing I think that surprised me was how shallow I found um, a lot of films. Um, I, I didn't. I didn't feel like I was being challenged enough when I went to the cinema. I'm um, perhaps. One of the biggest exceptions to that was Captain America: The Winter Soldier, and I'm, I'm going to talk about it in a little bit more detail. It didn't make the top ten, but I'm going to talk about it in a little bit more as to why that was. But it seemed that kind of when you're watching a Marvel film, um, normally you know they're kind of fairly dismissive kind of entertainment, I suppose. I sat there watching Captain America, kind of thinking about state surveillance and people like Edward Snowden and things like that. But I said I'll, I'll get to there in a little bit, but it seemed to be one of kind of the few exceptions Captain America, I saw a lot of films that were more about the genre they were in and playing with genre convention than they were anything deeper and a kind of an overriding sense of superficiality um, was present a lot I, f- I found when I was going to the cinema for example the Lego movie which despite making me laugh never really transcended from being simply a film about product and w- which in reality it was I suppose but it was kind of constantly trying to sell this product to me and even a to the extent a film which I really enjoyed like the excellent Inside Llewyn Davis it, it, it reminded me anyway of a film how good it is to have a, a lead character that you can kind of truly despise yet there was a sense to me at least that this film was more about the soundtrack and really kind of being a kind of a giant plug for that and I, mean, I know I know kind of Oh um, Brother Where out Thou there was, you know, there was a whole kind of really, there were constants organised around that film and, you know, so much kind of synergy with kind of soundtracks and things like that. And I kind of felt the same with Inside Llewyn and Davis. I, I sort of... I, I was under the impression I was being sold this kind of soundtrack experience more than the film. I don't know if that's just perhaps having aversion to Mumford and Sons. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. But, and I did enjoy the film, but that was kind of one of the kind of slightly kind of odd aftertaste I had from watching it. And Bell was another film which on paper seemed far more interesting than it actually was and what could have been something quite more profound rather became a kind of trite courtroom drama sort of resembling the very worst bits of Amistad and I and I, I do mean it, I mean I've seen Amistad a couple of times and I, I really don't think it's a, 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 good, a good film at all and it, it kind of just lost itself on me where it, it kind of became just white people doing the noble thing and rather kind of lost a more important message that I think could have been told and also when I was compiling my list I was quite frankly surprised by the lack of foreign language films in my top 10 and I don't think it was to say it was a bad year at the art house but I couldn't really bring myself to fall head in over hills in the likes of two days and one night from the Darden M brothers which seemed to consist of a frustratingly monotonous tale of Marion Coulthard knocking on people's doors all walking toward an end that was both anticlimactic, sorry, and kind of slightly aware that I wasn't really kind of moved or even cared about what was going on with the character and that perhaps sounds a bit callous given the kind of predicament this person's in, but the film kind of lost me and that was another one as well, which the critics were just falling over um in love with and I I thought it was fairly kind of standard Darden and Brothers. Um I, you know, I'm glad that they are out there making films and I've certainly enjoyed kind of the entries that they've had into the Criterion collection. But um yeah, I was a little bit lost with Two Days and One Night. Not 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 lost in terms of kind of the complexity of the film but perhaps because I was just a bit kind of expecting a little bit more from it and I, I, I didn't seem to kind of get the kind of the emotional thump that I was expecting from it and I, I guess it's kind of time as well really to kind of talk about the films which almost made the top ten um, and were kind of, kind of worthy of praise anyway and one of those was um, Mood Indigo which was a brilliant piece of kind of Crazy fun really from Michelle Gondry that was both kind of off the wall mental and kind of utterly tragic and also introduced me to the greatest easy listening song ever in the form of Boss Gags Lowdown. Uh, The Congress was a kind of slightly baffling film at times um, but also frankly amazing starring Robin Wright Penn as herself caught between a kind of real world and a kind of Matrix type virtual reality. It was a type of science fiction film that I wish we kind of had more of. Clearly, it had a decent-sized budget, but nothing in the regions of the tens of millions that it seems to cost. Makes something like *Transcendence*, which was a huge overblown. Um, I don't know if it was an awful film not, but I didn't get into it. But *The Congress* was one where you could tell it was kind of made. You just kind of the the, the budget had gone on the creativity of the film, and it it, it didn't seem to kind of detract from what was one of the more unique films, and I really need to go back to it actually, it's, it's well worth checking out, if you live in the UK you can actually see it um, on Amazon Prime as part of the streaming package, so I definitely recommend seeing it, um, Ida seemed to be a film that critics loved, and as did I, and it was certainly a visual gem of the film, um, kind of that 4-3 framing in black and white, Um Every frame looked like to kind of a, a photograph from a bygone age, but my viewing of it was somewhat tarnished by the misaligned projector that was both distracting and annoying, given no one in the cinema actually seemed to be that bothered by it, despite the fact that a few of us went up and complained about it. And um, The other yeah. film that was skirting my top ten was Starred Up, which was a tough British prison drama um, that was incredibly brutal and moving, and not the type of film that I'd be in a hurry to see again, but certainly a gripping experience. Um, slightly marred by everyone speaking in South London accents the entire time but uh, to say I enjoyed it would be wrong but to say I actually got some out of the of experience of watching it I certainly did and The, the Wolf of Wall Street was bar on the most enjoyable film I saw all oh, yeah I actually laughed my way through the entire thing um, and it wasn't hard not to love Jordan and DiCaprio in recent years has become one of my favourite actors and clearly him and Scorsese have a great working relationship it seems to bring the very best out in each other and it's really totally rewatchable as well, despite its immorality and the, it is ridiculously good fun to watch. Winter Sleep, um, they fell up to Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. Um, a Cilindous film came with me with huge expectations, and as many of you know, we, um, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia was my favourite film from a couple of years ago. And for the most part, I was with it until, without giving much away, what I kind of seemed it reached a climax, that just. Dis- did not seem to ring true for me um, from the film that I've been watching. I simply did not buy the actions of one character, and at three hours plus running time, I, I kind of left with a feeling that this has kind of gone. What had kind of gone before had kind of been unserviced by a kind of slightly kind of clunking ending. And just to point out, I had never been to a film where there's been so many walkouts, and I, I mean, this was a hard slog to get through. Um, at at, at times I I was like God it it sounds awful to say it but Winter Sleep looks amazing it's well acted you could hardly describe it as gripping I suppose and it's a film about so much nuance that you have to kind of really pay attention with it and I I, I think there's an argument to be made that films like this need to have an intermission and we need to kind of bring that back because It it was a punishing watch, and I I think I counted, in what was a fairly packed cinema, it was only a small screening, but there must have been 60-odd seats in the cinema, I counted at least 15 people walked out before the end, and I I, I was kind of, as they were going, I, I suppose the film snob in me wanted to kind of say something or kind of be quite smug, the fact that I wasn't walking out, but... I, I could kind of understand it. I, I, I was thinking, Do you know what, just go out and when this comes out on DVD and wow, Blu ray, whatever, just rent it and watch the ending. But I stuck with it and um, I. It was an interesting cinematic experience. It's not something I'd run back to and I don't blame anyone. I, I think it's a film that's made for um, watching at home where you can kind of have a little bit of a break if you require one. Um, another film that Larry missed out was Joanna Hogg's Exhibition. Now, this was a film for about 20 minutes I kind of hated because how can you really like a pair of artists living in a designer apartment um, who are upper middle class who really you know it seems kind of strange to say it but it's hard to kind of root for these types of people I find and um, the film did in the end win me over um, because it, I, th- I felt it was a kind of very honest portrayal of a relationship inertia. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously you have kind of like scenes, which are one well, the, the the female character in films is kind of performance artist, and there's a bit where she's like, I think she's like wrapping herself up in duct tape or something like that, and some of the acting was a little bit clunky at times, and these people were ever so, you know, just these tortured intellectual types, and it, I could see why someone would um kind of not like it or kind of dismiss it, but it, it kind of it, it got there to me in the end, and. I think it was, it was quite familiar really for anyone who's kind of been for that kind of relationship breakdown type thing when you kind of live in a house with someone and it's amazing how far you can grow apart despite the fact that you live in such proximity to someone else and um, yeah that's something that resonated with me and I, I I could understand the kind of the situation the characters were in and Hogg is a director whose work I think yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of going back to and seeing more of in the future um, I think she's certainly kind of won me over with this one um, I suppose I have to mention superheroes and Marvel and all that and by far I think my favourite kind of Marvel superhero film of the year has to go to Guardians of the Galaxy Um, and yes it has that kind of big spaceship thing crashing on the city at the end but... uh, that, that, that kind of blights all Marvel films, I think, in the end. But this was great from, from beginning to end. Chris Pratt has to be one of the most watchable leading men I've seen in a long time. But I think Captain America The Winter Soldier was an immense film, um, a product of the kind of Snowden, WikiLeaks age. It goes into territory that I didn't think Marvel would ever kind of go near. And when you're watching a superhero film questioning the notion of patriotism in the modern age, I can only give the film plaudits um, what Marvel have done with Captain in America I think is really is really good. They've taken a potentially jingoistic Fox News patriot character and thrown him into the modern age and make us ask fundamental questions about liberty and what patriotism actually is. You know, is Chelsea Manning a hero or a villain? And I think if you answer the questions that is the latter, then perhaps this is a film that might not resonate with you as as much as it did with me, but Um, I found the biggest disappointment perhaps in the superhero genre was X-Men Days of Future Past and yes I enjoyed it on some levels but overall felt like a giant reset for the next spate of X-Men films and it effectively rendered all the other ones um, completely redundant which in the case of X-Men The Last Stand is not a bad thing at all Um, mercifully now as well The Hobbit has come to an end and on viewing all these films back to back I can now attest that in truth they do very very little for me. Um, They're of course great to see visually um, but Again, I suppose on that, I just feel like they just do exactly what Lord of the Rings did. I mean, there's so many shots of, you know, the camera swooping over incredible landscapes, showing them all on horseback or walking. And um, I just don't feel any kind of connection to these characters at all. Martin Freeman simply does not make Bilbo uh, an endearing enough character for me. Um, he feels like he's being directed rather than giving a performance of his own making. And the film tells us a backstory that we already kind of know and various subplots that are neither really that interesting or add anything to the overall experience of the film and on the whole I found them to be kind of quite dull and uninteresting really, the Battle of the Free Army was like watching someone play Prince of Persia at times and the, the bits where I was supposed to cheer were to me more kind of eye rolling than they were joyous and I, hope, I really hope this is the last we see of Middle Earth on film, my gut says there could be more to come um, but I just think now it's just time to kind of leave these alone because they've done their job, they've made an absolute truckload of money and I guess that's the appeal of the studio. I mean despite the fact that I think these films are staggering the average I might be wrong in this but I think they've actually outgrossed the original Lord of the Rings films. That's just staggering to me that they have made so much money. But I guess it's time as well to talk about films that I saw this year that I really really disliked and of which there were three that really sprung to mind and the, the dubious award for The worst film I saw all year was George Clooney's Monuments Men, and make no mistake, this should be a a fun film, and it isn't on any level whatsoever. Every joke or gag fell completely short with me, to the point whereby I was just itching for it to end, I don't even know how I got to the end, quite frankly. Um, Coupled with some of the worst sermonising on the importance of art... Um, it it was a chore from beginning to end, and John Goodman being John Goodman is so trite and dull now that every time I see him, I I let out an audible groan. Um, Who finds this funny? Why is it funny? I I, I don't know. It it actually detracts from something like The Big Lebowski, I think, actually makes him less funny in that now, which is just tragic, really. Um, Lars von Trier and I stopped talking after Antichrist, and we became kind of friends again after Melancholia, but... Nymphomaniac. Um, he can just fuck off now and delete my number for good. This film is so bad. I actually could not take my eyes off it. It wasn't shocking or challenging. It was just absolutely rubbish. Um, I'm beginning to resent the likes of Charlotte Rampling and Stellan Skarsgård for always being in these films. It's like, you know, I know he's your mate, but seriously, this really it was just terrible. And the one film, and this is, and I'm not, I haven't put this in here to be deliberately contrarian. I'll try and stir up some kind of debate, but Wes Anderson's The Grand Dude Best Hotel annoyed me almost so much I could almost hear the the, the hipsters tweaking their beard in appreciation of this. Um, I've just had enough of it all, this film did nothing for me other than remind me how great Rushmore is and how annoying his films have become to me now. Um, I suppose there should be another award I should give out for the most sheer mental and that goes to Darren Aronofsky's Noah. Um, I don't honestly what to think about this film, it is so Utterly crazy. I mean, it's a kind of if you see it as a kind of a science fiction film set on an unnamed planet, then it's it's mentally good fun. I, I honestly, I was speechless whether to know it was is genius or rubbish. And of course, it caused outrage outrage amongst the religious community, which made me love it even more. Kem Ham's review of it is one of the most genuinely hilarious things I've ever read. Um, in which he actually breathes a sigh of relief that he, he didn't s- subject his wife to see it because it, it was just so it was so awful and manages to plug his uh, version of noah as well because obviously that's going to be a lot better but you can tell that this is aronofsky's passion project and like all passion projects you can imagine him kind of haranguing anyone within earshot at various hollywood meetings trying to get money for it um, and i'm glad it exists i even own it i picked it up for the grand the grand um sum of three pound 49 on blu-ray from amazon marketplace and I can kind of see myself going back to it. I, 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 did, I did really kind of, I was perplexed by it, and I, I'm always kind of intrigued to go back to those types of film. Okay, so Noah is a good way to segue into another aspect of film in 2014, which was I was constantly, consciously aware sorry, of how many truly brilliant soundtracks there were during the films that I was watching. These weren't just kind of soundtracks that I enjoyed during the films. These ones that I've gone back to independent um, and just listened to them on their own. In fact, I would say... As I will probably get there, one of these was probably one of my kind of albums of the year. But there's a kind of real standout ones, really, um, kind of Mika Levi's for Under the Skin, Patrick Doyle's for Calvary, um, Clint Mansell's work in Noah, I think, was, is, is brilliant as well. And as, uh, despite what I was saying about Inside the Davis, I've, I did actually enjoy the soundtrack. I did pick it up, um, <laughs> even though it does have Mumford and Sons on it. But um, yeah, I, I was. Th- these were to name, but a few really that kind of really stuck out for me, and I. I I was looking I I kind of suppose I I created a a playlist on Spotify and feel free to follow it, I'll I'll put the details up on the blog of the kind of soundtracks of my life, I've called it, and I noticed there was a lot of, um, a lot of times I was adding to this from films that I listened to, which is a good sign really because I think sound, uh, although there's been some decent soundtracks recently, there's been none that I've been really kind of like so into that I've listened to them over and over again and that certainly wasn't the case this year, so do, if you are interested, do kind of follow the link. Um, this was an, another aspect I found about 2014. It was kind of the year, really, where I think streaming has come into its own for me personally. Kind um, of Netflix and Amazon Prime um, have become an excellent way to watch films and TV, and I noticed quite a, a large decline in the amount of physical media I was actually buying this year. And I, I, I don't know whether it's too early to say that kind of physical media is dead. I know, I, I know, I certainly don't want it to, because I certainly think with um, streaming, though, actually, I would say the quality now. Of streaming has gone up there, especially Amazon Prime has really um, up the game really because before it, it was pretty rubbish, it was almost VHS the quality of their streams, and now they've gone kind of 1080p with 5.1 surround sound. And I've, I mean, certainly with um, Netflix as well. I mean, sometimes you could think you were watching a Blu-ray, um, and the amount of, of shows, and especially with what Amazon's doing and its kind of deal with stars, and there's been lots of TV series that I've got well into from watching them. So I've been really impressed, but. I think it's it's premature perhaps to say that um, physical media is dying. I, I suppose I certainly think there's benefits. Um, the the Blu- Blu-ray soundtracks are one of the better the best things for me. The uncompressed sound is, is absolutely incredible. And if you've got a decent sound system, you can really kind of get the benefit of that. And I don't know if that's going to be coming or is really that kind of much in demand to come to streaming services. It'd be interesting to see which way it's going. But I mean, I am um, perhaps I've got a bit more kind of discerning with the films that I've actually been buying. I know I wasn't buying kind of new blue rose today they were coming out I was being a lot more picky about what I was doing and certainly obviously I was picking up kind of Criterion Masters of Cinema titles but um, it's going to be interesting to see what they're going at. I do think this is the the, the rise in the niche label people like Arrow um, they've they've become one of those prolific boutique labels um, and I think kind of buying from these type of people is always a pleasure really and I think to a small extent, you know, kind of the investment, you know, ensuring that kind of back catalogue and rare titles are going to get released and it's something we've spoken about before in the Masters and more casts. I'm pretty certain I have on this as well, so yeah, I think I've got a, bit, a little bit more picky, but certainly just some of the, the, the um, films I bought on Blu-ray last year, especially the older ones, some of the transfers that I, I got to see were absolutely incredible, so I guess as well that kind of we can kind of talk a little bit about kind of TV series. Um, that I I was into over the year. Uh for me the Netflix House of Cards um reboot, I suppose you could call it, um, despite the second season being um pretty at times pretty tough to follow, um, American politics is um seems incredibly convoluted. Um and it, it was demanding but extremely rewarding television I thought a lot of the time and I was I'm always down with Frank Underwood. I think he could be one of my favourite baddies and um Kevin Spacey just plays him so well. Um, Ken Burns returned as well with the Roosevelt's and um, my goodness this was uh, um, 15 hours on us, you know, I, I am obsessed with Ken Burns films now and I, you know, even at 15 hours I could have watched this for another five, I, I, I really enjoyed it that much. Um, Brian Cox I think did his best series yet with Human Universe, I can really recommend checking that out, um, it was yeah, I, 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 it was pretty mesmerizing actually. And that does lead me to talk a bit about the kind of the reboot of Cosmos because before I watched um, this new version, I went back and watched the original Carl Sagan series and I found that infinitely more interesting. This and this new Cosmos, it felt like it was still really interesting, but there was a certain I don't know, I think it was a bit too Hollywood for me at times. Um, Nigel Digeris, uh Whose name I can never pronounce. I can't remember it off the top of my head. But that guy, Nigel Thingy, um, he's a really kind of genial guy, kind of a guy. I did sort of. Buy, I mean, you no, know, I know he's first and foremost um, a scientist and cosmologist and astrophysicist or what have you i did find sometimes his, his presentation skills weren't quite there but that being said it was a truly you know awe-inspiring tv series um at times and it's something i can definitely see myself going back to um i think the standout well, probably for me the two. i think game of thrones has certainly just kind of come into its own it just it just seems to be getting better and better um with each series and i, w- I w- it was just mesmerizing to me i, I think I can't understand why anyone wouldn't be massively into it, but I, I guess the kind of the, tele, the t- television highlight of the year was True Detective. Um, just came out of nowhere, really, for me, and I, I've watched it once. I haven't got back to it yet. I have picked up the Blu-rays of it, and I'm going to kind of sit down because I think it might be best watching in a kind of a binge way, but this was truly awe-inspiring television for me at, at, at times. Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, I think, given the best performances of their careers to date. And I know with the TV, you've got the long form. You've got that kind of... You got the longer arc to really kind of get into your character, but they those two guys were just absolutely phenomenal. And I'm really glad they're doing a second series, and it's going to be kind of like separate things. I think this could you can see that like if they're going to attract these type of people to it, I, th- I think the quality of these shows could could get better and better. And I said that, so that I think obviously I think season one set a very high benchmark, but I'm really looking forward to season two. Okay, so. Um, Without any further ado, really, I'm going to get into my top 10 and just a few things about this top 10 list. Last year, I think there were so many films um, that, for me, I I, I enjoyed. I kind of felt the same way about a lot of films. Um, And I suppose I composed my top 10 to kind of give a little bit of variety to it. And I think this year I've probably just been a bit more... um, literally just what what film did i genuinely enjoy and get the most out of this year and it's it's a list which i don't think is very there's nothing really that highbrow about it really i guess i think it, it, there might be a few surprises in there there might not be i don't i, I don't know but this was just sort of I, I guess a from the heart list as opposed to a list of films that i was trying to really kind of um I, 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 it's not to say that my list last year i wasn't trying to kind of be elitist, but there were just so many films that I felt very similar about that I, I I kind of selected ones which I thought would kind of give a decent kind of overview of how I felt about the year, but this year I've just kind of gone from the heart really. So um, of course let me know what you think of them, they're not in any particular order until the top three. So. Anything up until though until we get to that is completely interchangeable and I'm just going to randomly select the first ones to talk about first. So without any further ado, I'm going to get straight on with it with my 10th favourite film of the year. I like to win, but more than anything I, I can't stand the idea of losing because to me that equals death. In 2009, I set out to make a film about Lance Armstrong's comeback year. Lance, how are you feeling? Nervous, but that's good. I wasn't naive about past doping allegations. Never tested positive. They think he has. He didn't. But I couldn't help but root for the old pro. If I win again, they're not gonna, they can't say that. They cannot. But you can, but. He had lied to me, straight to my face all throughout 2009. UCI will ban Lance Armstrong from cycling. When the truth came out, I told him he owed me an explanation. After the years and years of just the most amazing denials. and can emphatically say I'm not on drugs. He agreed to sit down one more time. I certainly was very confident that I would never be caught. The gift that he has is his gift as a storyteller. A cancer survivor overcoming the disease comes back and wins. Yeah, they liked that. Even in 1999, steroids showed up in a urine test. So the guys scoured the internet, and we found one that was indeed a cream. Cream for what we call a saddle sore. Such a huge number of people wanted to believe that they hated anyone who didn't believe. I mean, I'm all for a clean game, but this is ridiculous. He was an immensely intimidating person. You are not worth the chair that you're sitting on. If you crossed him, you were doomed. There are people who have really been ruined. Lance wanted to humiliate Frankie, and he wanted to get back at me. From that point on, I was shunned, banned from everybody. And a lot of people, you know, would look at me, shake my hand. That celebrity is what gave him such immense power. Simply, you don't recall. just How many times do I have to say it? This is not a story about doping, it's a story about power. And the story became hanging on to that power. Let's get to the, the real nature and the real detail of the story. We haven't heard it yet. Is the is 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 the truth. Okay, so someone once asked me why I didn't wear a live strong yellow plastic thing around my wrist and it was quite simple really was I thought they were a load of corporate crap. I found the adverts to be incredibly annoying. I didn't really know that much about Armstrong, but the fact he was best mates with George Bush annoyed me. So to be honest with you, I just decided he was a bit of an arsehole and I wasn't really gonna, gonna get down with this. Then came along Oprah, and this was also infused with a love of cycling that came from the 2012 Olympics, and Sunny had a keen interest in Armstrong. And I took a degree of smug satisfaction knowing that I had suspected possibly. I was completely correct when I thought he was one of the biggest arseholes on the planet. And it is, well, the Armstrong story really was a perfect story. It was the all-American hero who had survived cancer to win the Tour de France seven times, who in 2009 came out of retirement to show the world he could do it again and raise millions for charity at the same time. Only, this wasn't a fairy tale story, it was a complete and total shame. Cover-ups, lawsuits, and lies upon lies, and Armstrong by no means was the only bad apple he was a poster boy for a generation for one of the most famous people in the world who amassed a fortune of over $150 million. His fraud was so breathtaking, it actually beggars belief. Or does it, really? Because when Alex Gibney set up to make a film about Lance Armstrong's 2009 comeback, it was a document to his triumph from Ride Up to Champs Elysees, the final screw you to his doubters. Only he actually finished third and then pissed off the wrong people and hey presto, Armstrong was public enemy number one. Armstrong hasn't begged for public forgiveness, he hasn't told us that how, with God's help, he's going to get through it all. In fact, he only seems to be bothered about is actually being caught. So what then? So how then, sorry, did Gibney actually manage to salvage the film? Well, the answer is actually incredibly well, because the Armstrong lies both a fascinating insight into the entire sorry story, and a worthy essay on documentary filmmaking itself. Part of Armstrong's image was to simply fud the public's perception of him through story management. Anyone who dared question him was sued, shunned, disgraced. His Livestrong Foundation, hate millions, cope with cancer, and was no doubt a great help in many people's lives. But also, what cynics and what I think I would believe actually is that this was merely part of an ongoing plan to launder his image in public was there to make the all-American hero film, and much like his excellent client Nine, The Rise and Fall of Elliot Spitzer, about a noble, if very flawed man in the end. The Armstrong Lie tells a very American tragedy about a paradox man whose entire professional career was in pursuit of nobility, built on the most vicious smear campaigns, and at, this out, at times outright evil pursuit of those who stood in his way. It is the American dream, as we see in the likes of Goodfellas or The Sweet Smell of Success, a relentless and merciless drive to be better than everyone else, to be the person who other people are, with no thought or idea how the how the pursuit of that dream will lead to your eventual downfall. Now Armstrong, when told about the title of the film, was actually apparently a little hurt, but begrudgingly admitted that, given the fact that he was a liar, and that even went as far as to say that although he thought the film misrepresented him, it was a pretty good account. And he does make for a compelling subject matter. You can tell he is a tough, dedicated and driven professional who is refreshingly candid about his cheating. He admits that he wasn't bothered about the team's decision to start doping and everyone else was doing it and they had to do what needed to be done. And I think it's a sad fact that the sport, the sport becomes so dysfunctional that drug-taking had become the norm. One could almost argue, could reasonably say that this period of the sport could simply be called the dark period and let the results stand. But then again, how could you ever kind of take that sport seriously again? And what makes the film so interesting, too, is how conflicted Gibney becomes about the subject matter. Because Armstrong begins in complete control of the project. He has, he is dictating the narrative, of the heroic return, even conspiring that his form, former teammate, Frankie Adi would be the only person to interview to him post-stage. Just reminded reminder, whose wife, Betsy, had testified against Armstrong, that he was beneath him in the grand scheme of things professionally. But Armstrong's lies snowball, and so does the balance of power in the film. And Gibney shows us Armstrong, the arsehole, the rude, arrogant, deceptive person. As events begin to spiral beyond his control, it's clear that Gibney himself was almost taken in by the hype, even becoming a subject of an anti-Armstrong film that was being made at the same time. Yet, as Armstrong loses control of the project, his own teammate also begins to conspire with other riders to try and keep Armstrong off the podium during the actual 2009 race. And it becomes clear that Lance cannot win, and all this is in conjunction with a slow-burning lead campaign against Armstrong. And I got the impression, kind of Gibney was beginning to turn the screws on him a little bit, because why why because the film's all kind of central premises. you know why has he come back and why why is he continuing to lie and it seems it's kind of questions that gibney's asking himself post the kind of post all this coming out it's not something he's actually trying to consciously think about the time and the kind of thing i was thinking was whilst it's going on is how's he actually managed to kind of salvage this film and i guess the kind of the question is does he manage to salvage it and i think he's he he does i think the Armstrong line lie does meander a little bit and you can tell of course but perhaps this, this is complete, completely justifiable to an extent because obviously he wouldn't have been going out to shoot this f- footage with the intention that he was shooting it, that would have happened later in post and it does seem to, I, th- I think, lose focus sometimes and gets, I, 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 I'm not kind of airy-fairy I suppose but it, it just loses focus a little bit and I think that that's completely understandable given what's happened and The the end result is a really fascinating look at Armstrong. It asks lots of questions about his subject, and I think he comes away not answering all of them, to be honest with you. I think there is an element, there is a lot of truth still waiting to come out about this subject, but as an insight into one of the greatest villains of the modern age, I think the Armstrong light is possibly one of the most entertaining films that I saw here, and I might be kind of clouded by the fact that I enjoy cycling so much, but I don't think you have to enjoy sport, or the sport in general, to enjoy this film. I think there's something in there which you can kind of really enjoy. So that's my number 10, The Armstrong Lie. Dear Sir, I am planning to walk across the Australian desert from Alice Springs to the Indian Ocean, a distance of 2,000 miles. When people ask me why I'm doing it, my usual answer is why not. The plan is ridiculous. Well, why don't you just shorten the trip? Tully and I will come with you. I just want to be by myself. You must be mad, girlie. You know that's about two thousand miles. Six months of hard walk. You want to die out there or something? Okay, so M83 are a band who I have come to love over the past year. Their synth, electro music appeals to me greatly, it's both epic, atmospheric and thoroughly catchy. It has also been used to the point of exhaustion on every film trailer for the past three years. And you can see why, why when you have 30 seconds to set a film, you can't really spend 30 seconds saying this is a slow meditative film that has very little drama or suspense, but come in and see it anyway because it looks beautiful and is generally very moving. So when the Trader 4 tracks came on, we got the obligatory M83 synth pop emotion and voiceover, reassuring us this was an epic adventure that would leave us moved to the point of tears. I couldn't have been less interested if I tried. Surely I'd seen this film before, besides one of those films that they bring around at the World Cup when apparently women demand a tonic to the 24-hour football coverage that Embarerby comes on. No, stay clear, I told myself. But being the brave sort that I am, I added the film to my love film queue and lo and behold when Trax did arrive an overriding sense of idiocy washed over me. Of course Cho's going to make it look like the film you've seen a thousand times before. That's what they do. Why didn't I just go and watch it anyway? Because make no mistake about it Trax is an underrated gem of a film and easily the most beautiful one I saw in 2014 based on the memoirs of Robin Davison, who in the 70s gathered some camels and for no other reason than she wanted to, trekked across the Australian outback, sometimes accompanied by National Geographic photographer Rick Sonneman, who was there to document her travels and publish them in the magazine. Now what I kind of loved about Tracks was the fact that it didn't try and imbue the film with some kind of huge massive significance. What Robin is doing isn't going to change the world, nor is she making some kind of huge statement about the nature of her existence. Flashbacks indicate Robin was possibly kind of exercising some kind of childhood trauma She's, by undertaking the task, but it's never really explicitly stated, and that for me really was part of of its charm. The idea of marching across Australia with a load of camels just for the sake of doing it seems, seems a bit ludicrous yet, also utterly compelling somehow, and I recently suffered a rare moment a few weeks ago when I was completely cut off from any form of communication, and it was a somewhat revelatory experience. I found it actually quite liberating not being WhatsApp, texted, or instant messages, and not having my work email or call me, and I wondered how I would cope with this in a kind of permanent state. And the fact of that in the Western world, you have to kind of really make a concerted effort to get away from, I suppose, the kind of... The demands that kind of all these technical devices have kind of placed on us and there is something i think a little bit exciting about being cut off and kind of just on your own for a bit it's, it's, it's a state that we don't really get to experience that much anymore and i really liked robin played i thought excellently by Mia calty because the film doesn't try and idle her, it doesn't demand that you like her and what i kind of quite found notes about was her relationship with rick um played by adam driver was interesting because she's completely mean to him a lot of the time and yes he is a bit goofy but the interplay between them is both funny and quite moving as the pair kind of their friendship developed over the course of the film they seem to kind of actually evolve and kind of develop a real kind of bond as to kind of what sometimes happens in film where I feel like characters suddenly start liking each other just because that's what the script says they should do and for all its kind of epic vistas of which I will talk a little bit more in detail shortly, but Track is a remarkably intimate film. And Robin with her kind of loyal dog Diggity and the Four Campbells make for a charming and thoroughly entertaining mob. And there is a real kind of sense that the kind of the, the different species in the film all have a very kind of close bond that this trip is developing. And you know, Diggity is on hand to kind of provide hugs, warmth and all the all important tracking skills when needed. And there's an endearing naivety about Robin as she makes the trip. And um, we know We know that she knows how to handle the animals, yet it seems to be kind of the humans who she kind of struggles with a little bit more. And her journey becomes something of a curiosity, and at various times she's surrounded by interested tourists, and clearly their fascination with her doesn't sit well. And perhaps this is the film's only real misfire, because armed with their cameras and silly hats, and other human beings are kind of relegated to a kind of hyperactive rabble of idiots. And I found it a little bit too on the nose, I suppose, that... I mean, I don't know how kind of likely it was in hand, but every time kind of more people were in the film, I, I, I tend to found that was the bits that kind of took me out of it a little bit. But he also kind of hints at the racism so relevant in Australian culture. And John Pilger's film, Utopia, last year was a depressing look at Aboriginal life in Australia. And Forty years later, her trip on almost nothing has really changed, and the Aboriginal escort that she has it, are kind of treated almost like exhibits in a zoo by the whites. And you kind of see these kind of pathetic shacks that these poor people were living in. And... and some have criticised the film for only dabbling in that issue, but I don't think this has the obligatory. I don't, I don't think it is that film to do this, and instead I think it's it's Robin's film, and I think it's all the better for that. Really, rather than kind of trying to be get too overtly political. Now, director John Curran used photos taken by Ritzonum as the basis of the film's visual palette, and the result is quite frankly one of the most beautiful I've seen in quite a long time. Looking at the actual image he captures then comparing them to the film you cannot help become completely drawn into its film's aesthetic and this is crucial because although Trax has its moments, on the whole it is kind of really lacking in what we would kind of identify as kind of being drama. And that's not to say that it's boring as such, there are a few instances of genuine panic for me and I make no mistake Trax doesn't seem to shoehorn in artificial threat and danger for the sake of cheap thrills. And nor does Robin really behave like someone who knows what she's doing in fact I think that's what makes her so relatable and the fact that that's where I kind of, I think that kind of adds to the drama and the fact that she doesn't really know what she's doing or isn't kind of an actual expert so even the kind of the smallest little thing can become a big problem and I don't like to use this term but the location is a kind of character and there's something mesmerizing about the Australian Outback and Cairns Wide Vista draws you into it and I think it's very much a kind of location which has dominance over man, and um, it you know water is scarce. There are various animals that want to attack you, and what well, the biggest threat really comes in kind of randy bull camels. And the outback is both romanticised and respected by the film. I think there's a duality between the hostility and the beauty. Bu- beauty makes for a natural dramatic tension here, and this doesn't try to compensate for the force moment of dramatic instances and indeed come the end of tracks I will openly admit that I could have quite happily been with this film for a good three hours it doesn't try and say you should do this or make pretentious claims that what Robin done has changed the world somehow it just tells a very simple tale of someone who for whatever reasons probably best known to themselves and always will be did something that many of us can only dream of doing and probably will never do and I found it to be a hugely uplifting film emotional and thoroughly captivating. And it's kind of a pity really it failed to ignite because this is a film that I think um, I have every intention of going back to and I think it's something which might come as a kind of a pleasant surprise to a lot of people. Um, I can certainly recommend picking up the Blu-ray because it's an absolutely fantastic transfer um, especially the Region B edition and it's also um, the soundtrack on it as well I, I, I really loved and uh, again it's one of those that I've listened to quite a lot this year. So that's tracks for you. So the next film I'm going to talk about and I suppose this had to happen. And Christopher Nolan obviously new film Interstellar came along and the world descended into a flurry of sniping hyperbulbs And my eyes began to rise steadily into the top of my head. And I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again, I love Christopher Nolan films, I can watch them over and over. I just refuse to accept that he's the greatest loving filmmaker, and that his films are the best films ever made. And I don't have an issue with people that do, but I, but what I'm not down with is this blind adulation that seems to follow him around, rending any conversation regarding his work a glorified shouting contest. I had and saw several interstellar debates that quite explicitly stated that if you had any issue with the film, you were nothing more than a hater or some kind of hipster snarker taking potshots at other people's enjoyment of it. It is, as far as I'm concerned, totally beneath me. I have no interest in having to justify my issues with a film, nor am I particularly interested in hearing how mortally offended someone is by my not agreeing with their point of view. In fact Nolan seems to have an almost religious aspect to his following with his faithful acting like the guardians of his reputation. When I left Interstellar my initial reaction was not overly positive, the film's final th- third was huge disappointing to me. How it would be churlish indeed outright dishonest to say that I didn't have a thoroughly good time with it. I saw it on IMAX for the premium price of £18 and I wanted to do so because I really wanted to have an experience Um, at the cinema that I hadn't had all year. I I think on that front, it did truly deliver. From the corn plains to the rings of Saturn, the film was truly immersive, frankly, jaw-dropping cinematic experience. And Nolan and co have clearly researched their world. In short, I believed it totally, as well as the dire situation mankind had found itself in. I doubt very much climate deniers, or idiots as I like to call them, will bother to pick up on the alarming and utterly depressing ecological message but make no mistake, Interstellar may be, on first appearances, a deeply personal tale, but it's also very much a film that is asking us to really look at the current state of the planet and how we are treating it. In the kind of the post-Dark Knight Rises hype, I was intrigued to see where Nolan would go, and I'm glad that he has achieved the clout in the to essentially do as he wishes, and Interstellar is not the typical multiplex fare. It is long, and it involves actual science and lacks a kind of typical science fiction tropes that the less educated seem to appreciate. Now here in my view is one of the reasons why, however, I struggled really to truly love this film. On the one hand, Nolan wants us to totally buy in the world, this world he has created. It goes to great pain to explain the significance and the importance of what is going on. And they expect you to take the premise of the film incredibly seriously, which given the subjects, I, 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 I duly did, however, I find with Nolan that he builds up his world and then decides to eschew the rules laid out in his own screenplays. Now take for example time, we are told every minute on the planets that these astronauts visit has consequences relating to years on Earth, and it's entirely scientifically plausible and frankly mind-boggling when given further thought. So as the crew crawl across a watery world at a snail's pace, you are completely conscious that every step could be bringing Earth to an end. And lo and behold, a huge wave appears, and they need to get back incredibly fast to the craft they're in. So having told us how important time is, Nolan in an undeniably visually cool way with his robots, which I love, by the way, suddenly swing into action, pick up the crew and hurriedly whisk them back to the ship. So I'm sat there thinking, well, presumably they could have done this when when, when they actually landed on this planet in the first place. Surely it would make sense. They just have just wasted years plodding along with mankind on a knife edge. And yet Nolan just showed us that he has a solution to this issue and has opted not to use it until a dramatic situation has occurred. And we need to make a distinction here between what we could call a plot hole and lazy screenwriting. Now, films are full of plot holes and we know that and we have to accept them to enjoy them. Um, Like, how does Andy put the poster back in The Shawshank Redemption? And no, it's not possible to put it back on the wall that flush. I simply don't buy it. However, who cares? Anyway, it's a truly great moment. Lazy screenwriting, however, is spending vast amounts of screen time explaining time dilation and possible catastrophic consequences for Earth, and having your cast walk at a snail's pace on the planet due to gravity, whilst another character hops up and down because of the amount of time they're taking, only for the huge wave to come along and suddenly your robots whisk the crew up and start carrying back to the craft, therefore seemingly negating the need for them to be slowly walking along in the first place. And- I want to kind of say, this isn't nitpicking, this is just genuine moments where I was taken out of the film because I was thinking about the screenplay and not in a good way, and I felt that it was also full of kind of what I can to be kind of false emotional beats. I didn't understand the Matthew McConaughey's daughter Murph's anger at her father through her life, and not for one minute did I believe Matt Damon's character would do what he does, and well, I, I can't really kind of. I, I guess I couldn't get over these scenes. They just seemed to be in there to kind of really kind of add this dramatic tension. I, I guess you know, perhaps to say the film needed that, but I just felt the kind of the actual story, the, the kind of dramatic premise contained within the story was dramatic enough, really. And one thing I won't deny, however, is that Hans Zimmer has easily produced for me at least one of the best scores in recent years. It was absolutely incredible to me. In fact. I can't think of a better one I've heard since The Last of the Mohicans, however my only kind of issue with its kind of implementation in the film is that I, I kept expecting captions to appear sometimes saying, you know, this is how emotional you should feel now, and that, all that aside, I can't deny that Interstellar was a science fiction film in the purest sense, it has actual science as a protagonist of sort, black holes and time and the sheer distances involved and the challenges that people need to overcome this. But also, like, gravity should show us just how inhospitable space, inhospitable, sorry, space is. Interstellar shows us just how awe-inspiring and terrifying a place is, too. There's so much we don't know about what goes on out there. And this film appealed to that side of me, really, because I can't get enough of all kind of things celestial. But I went into interstellar kind of having watched both the original and new series of cosmos and how it was the original that kind of captivated me so much with Carl sagan offering these kind of tantalizing glimpses of what might be out there and in a way kind of makes it all seem so strangely real and as the endurance floated past the rings of saturn on the imac screen i was genuinely awestruck and i could not take my eyes off the screen and i won't deny at one stage i actually gasped and Known as work here, kind of reminded me a bit of David Lean in some parts, and I think he was doing what for space, what kind of David Lean did for the desert, and just the amount of time he spends building these worlds makes for. Um, you, I, I do get this kind of impression: you kind of, you really are kind of exhibiting, you are really inhibiting these places, and you know, The aspect I really enjoyed was the two robots, Tars and Sars. I thought I thought they were quite brilliant, and. Um, I think Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway are two of the most watchable stars working today, in my opinion. They use a likability and a genuine charm, and I found profoundly lacking in so many other stars. And of course, Michael Caine is on hands be the kind of calming Caine role we have become so familiar with in recent years. Although, I would admit, I'm begging to think his career has moved kind of firmly into kind of coast mode, which, you know, I guess at that age it might be happening, but... It's not often I feel so conflicted about a film, and I've gone back to Interstellar, I'm quite glad I'm doing this this show kind of later on in the year as well, because I've been back to Interstellar, and I did really enjoy it again, but I just feel that there's a lot of question marks, and I, I kind of a sense that, in a way, it, it, does, it, it doesn't quite live up to what I was hoping to. And I think the script is a little bit lazy in that third act, and does undoes a lot of, kind of what went before, which I was really, really enjoying about it, but... On the other hand, it is a stunning, beautiful film to watch. It was the cinematic experience of the year for me, and paradoxically, one of the most frustrating trips to the cinema I've had. I'm, I'm intrigued to see how this film will kind of be considered in later years. I was okay what makes a good marriage? Mutual respect, understanding, att- attraction, compromise. Perhaps something being in love might help, well, David fincher has Gone Baby, um, his latest film and possibly the most enjoyable one to date, takes an almost Hitchcockian style look at the nature of marriage through the eyes of entertainment news, trial by media and the rather depressing conceit that long-term relationships breed not only contempt but simmering hatred. It is a nasty, thoroughly unpleasant film and one that I actually really enjoyed from beginning to end and Ben Affleck is, in my opinion, a far better director than he is an actor, but he, he essentially plays a slightly more animated version of the person he played in the excellent To The Wonder. Trapped in a love marriage and not entirely sure how to exit, Affleck is not treated as the poor victim. He's, on the evidence provided, a pretty crap husband. Um, unattentive, sexually exploitative and selfish, and seemingly indifferent to his wife's needs wife Amy, on the other hand, played by Rosamund Pike, is kind, generous and generally only happy to support him and nurture him. When his mother becomes ill, the pair decide to relocate to his hometown and it's here things very quickly turn sour. Now what I liked about Gone Girl was how quickly it exposed the fallacy that was the marriage. It captures the rut and the banality that so many long-term relationships fall into. I can personally attest to the fact that often or not you were put on a show to everyone else smiling and being polite only for the second you're on your own to not actually give a toss what the other person is up to. I recall in a previous relationship having a simmering resentment about a holiday we went on early in our relationship. It was five years prior to the end and the beginning of the end for the me and what's more I knew it at the time and from that point I never looked at her the same again and I felt that Gone Girl captured that type of mood quite well. The comment that kind of goes through you, the looks that people exchange when those minor issues begin to annoy you in those kind of moments between two human beings where things are beginning to go sour. And what I feel the film does, it takes, takes these kind of concepts and skews these feelings into something slightly kind of far more darker and ultimately perverse. In Panic Room, David Fincher showed us that the all-too familiar nightmare of the home invasion and the reason why we lock our doors at night and that nagging doubt that the bogeyman is out there trying to get in. And Fincher pulled in seven one of the I think one of the, the greatest kind of tricks in modern cinematic history, he took a genre we all know and love, the Buddy Cop film, wrapped up psychological thrill and played in our familiarity with the comfort of genre convention only to have the apparent point of the film to give itself up two-thirds of the way through. And it's a kind of a, there is a persistent threat in Finch's work, the idea that out there somewhere there's a dark force waiting to confront you, and on a physical and mental level. In Gone Girl, the sanctity of marriage is torn apart. The idea that behind the facade of suburban life, even in our most private of private lives, we are constantly fighting some kind of dark fear. As Nick and Amy's life is pulled apart, we think that the point of the story is Nick to find out what his wife is plotting against her. Yet Fincher isn't so much interested in such gen- generic rehashing. Instead, what we get is a, is, is kind of an, at times, I, I suppose, a kind of a, a really kind of sad look at the kind of culture of trial by media that we have. We like no more than we like nothing more as a site than stringing someone up, running, ruining their lives, and then not apologizing for doing so. And in the smart phone age where a reputation can be destroyed in seconds, the film exposes the darker side of the modern world where our obsession with the lives of others often eschews the morality of what we are actually kind of obsessed with them for. And the Pistorius trial, I think, was a perfect example of this. There was no reason to broadcast the trial other than for the entertainment of seeing a famous person be tried for killing his girlfriend. And the media scrum analysis of it to me was quite distasteful. Um, At the end of the day, a girl had her head blown off, and uh, for the legions of Armchair's lawyer, it became almost kind of a game of sorts, trying to second-guess his motives and what had actually happened, and, you know, why don't we have every single murder that goes on? I I think it was quite strange, because in a way, I felt like it was sort of suggesting that it was only when famous people kill each other that it actually has some kind of greater significance, and in Gone Girl, the media kind of talk, they have a perverse delight in what is going on, and... Nick might be a murderer he might not me but the the, the media uh, and it's clearly what a kind of a Fox News parody um, have so much fun kind of analyzing this it's, it's become a form of entertainment for them and I'm not I'm not kind of sure how much kind of replay value that Gone Girl will have and I, I rather feel it might might kind of be a little bit more shallow than I first thought on on viewings but um, it was a film that I was thoroughly captivated with and um, it, it, I, I, did kind of, I did find myself kind of thinking about it and really enjoying it as well. And um, Obviously, I, I don't want to kind of give away spoilers in case you haven't seen Gone Girl, but this really much kind of film that I, I felt really kind of takes part in that David Fincher universe. You can see, you can imagine these people kind of existing out there in, in this kind of world that he's created. And his is a world that I am interested in, unlike someone like Wes Anderson, who kind of, this kind of toy box, this is my little, you know, kind of twee little world. I think David Fincher has so much more going on in his films and kind of other filmmakers and I'm thoroughly down with one of where he goes to next and it's interesting to me as well that I kind of think of David Fincher as being this massively prestige, prestigious filmmaker which he is to a degree but he does make, um, you know, really kind of like he, he's very much part of the Hollywood system and making these kind of darker thrillers which I, I think appeal to a kind of a slightly more adult audience and, uh, you know, long may it continue. It's not often I see a mainstream Hollywood film, and the second it's finished, I instantly want to re-watch it. In fact, it's not often that happens at all, and when it does it, it often seems to occur. Um, when I've watched a film that I'm not necessarily that keen on, but I think I might like again, and sometimes if I watch a film that I really like, I, I, I sometimes don't go back and watch it for another five years, and um, The Prestige was one such film, actually, in fact, where... Um, I, I really loved watching it, and I waited about another four years before I watched it again, but contrary to how I may sound, I actually have fun every now and then, and especially when it's fun that's well made, funny, and doesn't take itself too seriously in Star's Emily Blunt. Now, Edge of Tomorrow was, for me, the surprise package of the year, I've not seen the new Transformers film, but I can tell from the trailers, and I think, I, I guess a kind of a sneaking suspicion that it was actually probably moronic. It still made a billion dollars, so clearly there must be some people out there who enjoy this kind of tripe. But it does really kind of get me thinking, you know, who actually enjoys these types of films like Transformers? I mean, you know, you can guarantee that a lot of people, I would have thought, when I watched Transformers and thought, what an absolute load of shite, and instead they should have watched Edge of Tomorrow, because I can almost guarantee they would have had a way better time. And sadly, Edge of Tomorrow wasn't a big hit at all, in fact. And I've always had a great deal of time for Tom Cruise. And despite clearly the fact that he's actually insane, um, I think he can make an average film kind of pretty good, to be honest. And when he's on form, I I think he can really kind of elevate things to kind of a whole new level. Like, I mean, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol. I think that's a brilliant film, one of the best kind of contemporary Hollywood films in in many, many years. I think in Edge of Tomorrow Emily Blunt I think for me kind of does steal the show somewhat and I won't deny um, I am ever so slightly a little bit in love with her but the overall strength of Edge of Tomorrow is its execution and how complete a film it feels. And by complete I mean every single element of it seems to work and what I like about it, it doesn't try and reinvent the wheel here it's not even that original but rather kind of like it almost seems that everyone who is involved in it, from the screenwriters to the actors, knows how to make a solid, if not exceptional, piece of pure entertainment. And Doug and Lyman, I think, plays into the film's strengths. The, 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 script, the script is witty to the point and plays on the cast and its considerable visual skill with aplomb. And there's no fat on this script either, no kind of silly backstories or distractions. The film sticks to a telling its story, much like it kind of... I guess kind of like a groundhog day, kind of meets Gears of War hybrid and of course the film eventually has to kind of explain itself and why all this is happening and the answer is so incomprehensible, I'd rather kind of get the idea they may have just started off as a concept long before the story was really kind of thought out about much that that kind of, like I guess kind of planned out that much is what I'm trying to say, but that aside I think Edge of was fun I could barely contain my joy watching it and I've, I've gone back to it, I've seen it again and yeah it doesn't seem to kind of get any worse having kind of knowing what it's all about and what the ending was in fact i think i kind of enjoyed it and even more perhaps and this is the type of film which i think i want i I want more films like this i you know these are the perfect kind of tonic to more kind of heady material and i mean if you haven't i I really kind of suggest kind of giving it a go because it wasn't helped by a truly awful trader and the kind of pointless debate surrounding its name edge tomorrow was for me, a, a big budget film that truly delivered, and s- sadly some have dismissed it on the Cruise Factor alone, and his star may be waning, I think, but you know he, he has kind of made a kind of a welcome kind of return from the, kind of the truly average of Vivian. but science fiction perhaps I think it's come to take itself a little bit too seriously of late, and I think Edward tomorrow knows the genre can be fun, and in that respect was a hit with me from beginning to end and I, I think it kind of drew comparisons in a way with um, John Carter, which it's considered, I read read quite an interesting thing saying that the problems with John Carter and an article the other week and it was was saying all the problems the problems with John Carter didn't make any money, Um, that that was its problem I think if it had been a massive success people would still be talking very fondly about it it's certainly a film that I really liked and I'm I'm not entirely sure if Edge of Tomorrow was a a kind of a catastrophe but it certainly didn't perform as well as expected and I think for some reason um, we associate box office with quality sometimes and that's something people really should kind of get out of the way because this was, yeah, easily the most enjoyable film I think that I saw. Oh, yeah, I I loved it from beginning to end and uh, definitely well worth checking out. And I would just say as well that um, I bought the Blu-ray of this and it had the 3D Blu-ray attached to it. And as an up-conversion goes, I think it did actually add something. Um, It was was a really good conversion, um, I would say, first and foremost. But some of the battle scenes, kind of the way they were kind of stretching off into the the distance on the screen, did look really good. And, uh, yeah, absolutely loved it, so do check it out. I never wanted any of this. I never wanted to be in the games. I just wanted to save my sister and keep Peta alive. Miss Everdeen, it's the things we love most that destroy us. now. You're alive. PETA is the capital's weapon. The same way you're ours. You will rescue PETA at the earliest opportunity, or you will find another mocking Jay. Okay, so the next film that I'm going to talk about, I'm not going to talk about for very long because I am awaiting for this film franchise to end so I can do a massive episode on it. And it might not come as much surprise if you do know me and um, follow me on Twitter and things like that, but the film I'm talking about um, was The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 1. Um, now, I've read a lot of people kind of say but they didn't like this film. They thought it was a bit too plodding and a little bit too meandering. And yeah, it does suffer, I guess, from the fact that they've kind of chopped the last book in two. But I'm not, in t- I'm, I'm not in the least bit bothered um, that they've done that. I, I wish they'd chopped it into three because I, I, I think these films are absolutely brilliant um, on every level. And I'm gonna literally, you're gonna get hours on me talking about this. But I was, um, I'm just so surprised at how gutsy these films are and how dark they are and how salient they are to the modern world and they're just ex i, I think they're so expertly executed in every way and I think you know I am a fan of the books and i, I think these films have actually i think they surpassed those in terms of quality which um yeah feel free to kind of rip me to shreds but yeah the hunger it didn't i, I could have easily put the, the last hunger games in in, in last year's list but No, I'm going to say right now, I I think this is a really good film. I think it will, once part two comes out, I think, um, and you can see them kind of back to back, or or I I guess you can kind of like do a whole day of The Hunger Games, I think this film will kind of really kind of stand out. Absolutely amazing image of film. At times I was reminded of, um, for example, seeing the the footage of Gaza last year after the Israeli bombing campaign, and then that kind of brilliant, almost zero Dark Thirty kind of, raid it at the end I, I just think this film is hitting so many spots and doing it so well and I, um, Jennifer Lawrence as well as Katniss I think this is an outstanding role and a, 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 a really decent female lead and we don't seem to have that I think she's become as iconic as Ripley has in the Alien franchise so um, yeah cannot wait for part two and to watch all these films and uh, yeah be prepared for a very long and boring episode well hopefully it won't be boring it might be um, highly entertaining for you but um, I, I cannot hide my Hunger Games love, and you will be hearing a lot, lot more of those in the future What do you want to say to me? I'm here to listen to whatever you have to say I'm going to kill you, father Certainly a startling opening line Do you think it was an idle threat? I don't know, I'm not sure So you're not sure means it's possible of Christ. Things you hear in confession these days. Do you know what felching is? I do know what felching is, yeah. I had to look it up. That's what I've always liked about you, Father. You're just a little too sharp for this parish. Interesting man, you, Father. A good man, a fine man. Nobody around here has a bad word to say about him. Makes you wonder what he's hiding. I'm going to kill you because you're innocent. i give you enough time to put your house in order. Sunday week, let's say. Could have a word. I hope we don't get locked in here. We'll have to make love to keep warm. (laughs) Finish with all your gobbledygook. Every life is sacred, Frank, for God's sake. Some are less sacred than others. The commandment, thou shalt not kill, does not have an asterisk referring you to the list of instances where it's okay to kill people. What about self-defense? It's a tricky one, all right. What does this man want? There's no point in killing a bad priest, but killing a good one, that'd be a shock. I call the fire brigade, Father. Takes a lot of nerve to burn down a church. I'd say it was the Romanians. They're awful heathens. The Romanians. Nobody wear a grudge against your father, no. That could be half the country. Time is gone. You don't even realise it. My time will never be gone. I think there's too much talk about sins, not enough talk about virtues. What would be your number one? I think forgiveness has been highly underrated. Do you not have anything to say to me, Father? Not right now, no. But I'm sure I'll think of something about Sunday week. The Guard was one of the surprise films of the past few years for me, so when I heard that, Brendan Gleason and director John Michael McDonough had reunited for Calvary. Well, I was mildly excited to say the least. Now, the result I am pleased to say is actually even better than The Guard. It, Calvary is a funny, heartbreaking, and thoroughly enjoyable film, and on another year could easily be my favourite. Now, Set in Ireland, it tells the story of a local priest played by Brendan Gleason whose flock have somewhat lost their way is reliably informed he's going to be killed in confession in a few days time and thus sets in motion a tragic and very funny few days in which he deals with his myriad of problems from depressed individuals who live in this village and his daughter who has recently tried to commit suicide. And I found it to be a deeply reflective film about the state of the Catholic Church and its position in the lives of those pertaining to have it at its heart. And the film kind of grabs you straight away because you see um, a confession and we learn that one of his parishioners um, has been sexually abused and he wants to kill a good man for maximum impact on his actions and it almost sets in motion this kind of high noon type countdown I suppose to kind of the inevitable that's coming and it plays like a tragedy of the most gut-wrenching kind because every single line in the film I found a deeper meaning film and perhaps it it isn't exactly subtle at times I don't think and I, that's no by no means a complaint it's just a sense that this is a, a, a place in time that is kind of spiritually and mentally lost and Father James doesn't try to lecture those he serves he simply wants to help them kind of prod them in the right direction and these kind of issues range from kind of things like casual drug abuse, domestic violence, adultery and he isn't afraid to get in the occasional fist fight either. Now the arrival of his daughter played brilliant by Kelly Riley, Um, really kind of gives a further emotional hit to the film and having tried to commit suicide, she, basically from a failed relationship, he, you see kind of how Father James is kind of wrapped with guilt over the treatment of her and his dead wife and being a die-hard atheist, it's easy for me to sneer at the role religion plays in the world. However, what I found myself thinking during the course of this was the fact that these various lost souls in this film need some kind of reconnection with and in a sense of their own humanity and i don't think the film was saying this necessarily needs to come from a reconnection with the church moreover i think it was more saying that the role religion could play in this was kind of to be a vessel by which they could kind of discover their own path and get their lives back on track and there were frequent times during Calvary where i was reduced to tears and perhaps most of all when a local m- multimillionaire finally found the courage to ask for some help and guidance and the fact that a character go from eco things be so horrible to so vulnerable it felt incredibly real to me and what i like about these films is you look at the guy it took a narrative elements of the kind of body cop genre and spun them brilliantly in into a kind of modern telling of that story. And Calvary has a western feel to it, this is a frontier town seemingly lacking in central authority with a desperate band of people trying to eke out some kind of spiritual existence in it. And Father James kind of plays like a sheriff in High Noon. You know, you know, we kind of see him kind of walking around trying to kind of, I guess, re his authority or, or kind of the fact that he should be looked up to, you know, the fact that he is the local, you know, the local priest. You know, people should do. but it seems that he's kind of very vulnerable as well and those it kind of in his sphere of influence and that he doesn't really command a great deal of res- respect but I don't think he, you know, indeed he kind of really particularly craves it. is simply a man trying to do a job that some would consider impossible and he's kind of anchored to this by his fa- faith and he feels compelled to do so and that's something I just so loved about this character and I think the, f- the film does kind of I guess it kind of it does stretch the point a bit about the Catholic Church. There's one scene that didn't fit quite quite right with me, where Father James is walking on with a child, and a car pulls up, and a man just the man's father starts bellowing at the child to get back into the car, and it it just seemed perhaps the, the message was being hammered home a little bit too hard. But it did kind of make you think, you know, where, where does the church fit into the modern world, especially in the Western world? I think um, you know, religion is on the decline, um, and I guess there is this kind of need... Well, one argument is that religion fills this kind of spiritual hole in us. I necessarily don't... I, I don't believe that at all. But I think that that's that's going to be an issue, you know, where, you know, where people are losing their weight. What it is it that they need? And I don't think this film really kind of offers... Um, a kind of a neat kind of solution to that issue. Um, I think it's something that is very much which is... Um, I guess, I guess the film kind of suggests that that's something we have to kind of find within ourselves. And come the end of Calvary, I, I was emotionally drained by it. I think Brendan Gleeson's performance is arguably the best of his career. And its closing poignant finale um, it, it kind of left me, you know, a bit of a blood-brewing wreck, really. And how this film was passed by so many people is beyond me. Perhaps its tone may be a bit too much for some, but this is an absolutely sublime film. Um, and... I, it's, you know, it's when Oscar season comes along. I mean, you know, God, where was this film? I, I, you know, I don't know. It, it's, it's absolutely mad to me. But yeah, definitely Calvary. This is a, a brilliant, brilliant film. I mean, it's a solid five star 10 out of 10 film for me. And it, it's it, one of my favourites, I think, in, in recent memory. Mr. Theodore Twombly, welcome to the world's first artificially intelligent operating system. We'd like to ask you a few questions. Okay. Are you social or antisocial? I guess I haven't been social in a while. How would you describe your relationship with your mother? Oof, nice. Thank you. Please wait as your operating system is initiated. Hello, I'm here. Hi. Hi, I'm Samantha. Good morning, Theodore. Good morning. You have a meeting in five minutes. You want to try getting out of bed? (laughs) Yeah, you're too funny. Okay, good, I'm funny. I want to learn everything about everything. I love the way you look at the world. How long before you're ready to date? What do you mean? I saw in your emails that you'd gone through a breakup. Well, you're kind of nosy. So what was it like being married? There's something that feels so good about sharing your life with somebody. How do you share your life with somebody? How are you? I guess I've just been having fun. You really deserve that. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've been with somebody that I felt totally at ease with. What's it like to be alive in that room right now? I wish I could put my arms around you. I wish I could touch you. How would you touch me? I'm lying on Falling in love is a crazy thing to do It's kind of like a form of socially acceptable insanity love. What does a baby computer call its father? I don't know what Data It's so quiet It's dark. you feel me with you right now? I've never loved anyone the way I love you. Me too. Now we know how. Okay, Spike Jones is a director with whom I have... I've never been quite entirely sure whether I love or simply like his work, and... Sometimes I find it to be quite sublime like being John Malkovich and other times I find it baffling to the point whereby I really have kind of zero idea what's going on or simply lose interest in frustration at my own lack of intelligence. And it was with some degree of trepidation that I went into her and... From the trailer, I, I was kind of a little unsure whether or not this was going to be a film which I kind of thought was kind of aimed a little bit too much at the kind of the hipster market. I don't know, there was something that kind of put me off about it. I, think, I don't think the poster for this film did much for me. The one with Joaquin Phoenix, I, I just wasn't entirely sure about it, but how kind of wrong I was, because her, I think, is not only one of the, kind of the best films I saw in 2014, I think it's Easy Jones's best film to date. And, of course, um, it kind of came out a time I suppose over the past few months where it's become very relevant to me as well and I guess when I was thinking about it in the digital age we spend an increasing amount of time interacting with various digital devices and our lives are laid bare online it, you know, should we decide to do that which a lot of people seem to do and we have arguments and falling out of people who only exist in a digital medium and the rise of online dating has changed the way in which we meet people and, and form relationships and for all kind of ne- negativity surrounding the kind of the digital mediums i think i think we have to kind of look back kind of roll back really at kind of a few hundred years and if you're a woman your husband was effectively chosen for you your marriage was in the first instance one of convenience and perhaps just kind of settle a debt or something equally unromantic then kind of then came the age of the kind of the you know sexes meeting in public and Barriers and between the genders began to come down, really, which has kind of evolved right up until the modern day. And in the last kind of decade, I suppose we've had the rise of the internet and with the use of smartphones, 4G broad brands we can now interact with the opposite sex on an unprecedented scale. And in a way, we're kind of previously unknown. And I was I first saw first saw her, sorry, in April, um, and was kind of taken with it really from the off. And it wasn't till a chance encounter in November that the film really began to resonate with me. I met an attractive Irish lady in a Manchester sushi restaurant and we ended up exchanging numbers. And the very next day we began messaging each other through WhatsApp and two weeks later uh, we decided to meet up in Belfast. And the distance, although not huge between Manchester and Belfast, um, has been kind of overcome with the likes of Skype and WhatsApp and just about every kind of form of communication. For the most part, I am glued to my phone whilst we exchange messages and I'm pleased to say that our relationship has gone on leaps and bounds in those months. But the strange thing is, is that she actually kind of exists more in a digital realm than she does for the real one for me because... It's, it's kind of a constant surprise to me how much you can get to know someone just by kind of messaging and talking on Skype obviously but and certainly the fact that our relationship has blossomed over long distance has been helped massively by technology and we are people I think obsessed with our smartphones we spend billions on them and such as the case they can actually talk to them in a very limited way and they will talk back to you with help and her takes this concept a step further, what if your phone wasn't just an operating system, it became your lover? And it, it sounds daft, but the charm of this film is, it kind of really comes in how quickly I bought into the reality of it, because we've had a kind of an association through science fiction of attaching human emotions to AI, and you know, how singing in Daisy, Daisy in 2001 is the easy most emotional moments in the whole film, despite the fact that Howe is not human and has no actual emotions whatsoever. In, in terms of the film's internal logic, the relationship between Theodore, played by Joaquin Phoenix, and Samantha, his phone, voiced by um, Scarlett Johansson, I, I found it completely plausible and totally moving. And what resonated with me was the rather giddy feeling that the film captures of kind of Theodore and Samantha beginning their relationship. That kind of they joke, they tease each other, and they share kind of wonderful, intimate things that new couples do. And negating the fact that she's an operating system, I think, is testament to how Jones I think pulls the film together and gets this kind of concept working and he doesn't try to over explain the central concept or he almost doesn't like draw attention to it in a way it simply says that this is happening you can either go with it or not and I did and I loved every minute of it and um, I think Ho is a truly brilliant science fiction film um, and yeah, the fact that I, I, I'm pretty sure the film was filmed in China it definitely looks like it definitely looks like it's me somewhere like Shanghai I think but and, and obviously kind of transplanting kind of white caucasian or kind of western looking people into that kind of gives it this kind of otherworldly feel but far from kind of a kind of a dystopian future it seems that this is a world where one where man has become far more interested in the facets that make up being of human happiness and interactions than actually experiencing and it seemed quite plausible to me and extremely recognizable that this is a kind of a path that we as a species could go down and don't go wrong this isn't a dystopian film at all i just think it's kind of that's a kind of point it was making about kind of relationships and Her is a very, I think it's a very subtle film as well in the way it deals with the subject of love and you know what is love and what makes us attracted to other people you know what are we really kind of looking for in life you know do we do we even need each other and can you just be in love with an idea of someone and I, I think the film does offer us this like a, a warning over the dependency on technological obsession because I think communication is key in this film and I think one of the kind of overriding messages I took of it is that despite all the tech we have in our lives it's human connections that are the most important to us and you know always through the film uh, Theodore is torturing himself with moments well I don't suppose torturing himself but recalling these moments with his ex-wife and I guess compared to the scenes with Samantha they were obviously more real, and they seemed far more genuine to me. They seemed to be kind of in those flashbacks. There was a real kind of sense that this was a very important moment in his life, and it's something that had obviously really kind of scarred him very deeply, and had, had meant a lot to him. And I think perhaps what it shows us is that no matter kind of how painful these experiences are, and how much they kind of resonate us through time, these are experiences that we kind of shape the way we are, and how they kind of guide us in the future, and what we learn from them. And I thought it was a very bold film um, in this regard. And I I think some people might be a bit dismissive of it or or find it too unrealistic. But I found it completely touching, funny, and beautiful to watch as well. And I I felt at the time that the, the film actually kind of treaded a path that Terrence Malick sometimes does by looking at the connections between humans and our place in the universe. And in this case, I think Jones actually does a slightly better job. In the end, we all want love, even if it does come from the strangest places. And for me, it came in the form of an Irish girl who I met in Manchester on a random night out. And that very morning, I didn't even know she had existed. And if anything, the film tells us to savour these moments and treasure them no matter where they come from. Okay, so my number two and number one films of the year. Well, I've already spoken about them last year, so you can go and find episodes on them, but this this, this number two came in at Richard Linkmaker's Boyhood. Um, It's strange, because in in, in the time that Boyhood has has come out, although I've not read overly, an overtly kind of critical review of it, I have read a few kind of people who who are saying it's good, but they don't think it's the kind of the masterpiece a lot of people are going about, and I, I certainly... Um, I certainly do think it's a, a pretty incredible film. Um, had this been made by Francis Truffaut it, we would be going on about it ever since it come out all those years ago. And I think, think about Boyhood. I think it's going to go through a phase of being coming out and being critically lauded, then kind of not so much dismissed, but slightly reevaluated. And I can see, um, I, I can see it becoming a classic a Stonewall classic in a few years to come. I think it's going to kind of refine its classic status, but Boyhood was number two. Like I said, there is an episode in that, so you can go back through the archives and find that. And number one, it won't come as any surprise to anyone. Of course, it was Jonathan Glaziers Under the Skin. Um, I've gone back and watched it again and I, I, twice, three times perhaps since I, since I last heard it. So, you know, this, this film is still just unbelievably good for me. I... I... I, I Perhaps I've become overly and blinkered by it and I need to get some space from it and come back to it and kind of watch it again and kind of see if I can kind of find fault in it. But I genuinely believe this is one of the best films ever made and, and I don't say that lightly. It's definitely one of my favourite films of all time. Um, I think it's a stunning work. I just cannot, uh, I, I can't praise it enough. And, and going back and watching it again, Scarlett Johansson's performance in this, I, I think it's, it's so good. And just this, the way the film is so unsettling to me, and I, I just think that every time I watch it, I take something else out of it, which is a, a testament to how good I think it is. You can unpick the kind of the the gender issues that are going on in there. You can find it a very scary film as well. It scared me. Going going back to it and seeing it again, but yeah, for my thoughts on Under the Skin, go and find the episode. Listen to forty minutes of me waffle on about it. But that was my. 2014 um review and I kind of appreciate perhaps a lot of the, I, don't, I don't I don't think this is perhaps my most elitist list I did kind of say that, uh, say that at the beginning but kind of looking back you know there's a few films in there which I think you know certain films like tracks which I think perhaps a lot of people um might not have seen you know go and go and check it out it's on Netflix now in the UK I think it's on Amazon Prime as well um it certainly comes down on price on blu ray you can pick it up for 6 quid um, I'm not sure, you know, if I was to go and do a kind of a revisionist look at this uh, 2014, um, you know, would the Edge of Tomorrow still make it? Would the Hunger Games still make it? Or would, you know... uh would would I would I put Peter Berg's Lone Survivor, I know that I, 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 I did love that film when I, I, I said it might make my top ten and uh, yeah, would I replace it with that and I will uh, happily defend Lone Survivor to anyone who uh, dares slag it off, as I have done on Twitter to a couple of people I seem to recall, um, who thought I was actually taking the piss when I said it was a brilliant film because I genuinely believe it is, but that was my 2014 I'm sorry it's taken so long to get around to doing it um, let me know what you think of it um, we will try and get some uh, episodes out there soon There's a bit of a backlog actually of editing and a few ones which I've been fanning around with for ages but you know let's try and uh, crack on and let me know what you think so thanks for sticking with me um, follow me of course as well on Twitter, at 24framescast. Um, I will start updating the blog more. I've got lots of projects on the go at the moment as well. So um, you can follow my other podcast as well, The Master of Cinema Cast, that I do with Joachim. You can find us on the Criterion Cast feed or our own feed at um, moccast.blogspot.com. So do check us out if you want to hear more of my dulcet tones. Many thanks for listening, and I'll be back as soon as I possibly can. Bye.